Welcome to Shooting the Shit. I'm Oscar. And I'm Alex. We were random roommates. And now we're random best mates. Today we'd like to kick off a special mini-series that stemmed out of why we got into podcasting in the first place. Conversations. To hear other stories, to understand other stories, and recognize where we fail to cross the line and fully understand others. And everything in between. This mini-series is something we've been working on for the past couple of months and have had the great opportunity to chat with numerous folks across various domains. In this first part of a multi-part mini-series, we truly wanted to get an understanding of where the gaps in conversations exist in society, specifically who holds the power in conversations and what structural issues play a large role in, in the way these conversations are had. For this first part, we decided to tap one of our good friends, Mahit Mukim. I like to think of him as a jack of all trades, you know, whether it's philanthropy, law, politics, the man's been there, done that. So without further ado, this is Mohit Mukim. Welcome Mohit Mukim to uh, Shooting the Shit with Alex and Oscar. Thank you for uh, making it out here today, this uh, afternoon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Do you want to start off with sort of introducing yourself, sort of where you're at? how you know us, like what you're up to in life right now or where things are going? Yeah, I am currently in Stanford, California. That is where we met. Uh, <laughs> if you remember, just six years ago, we all moved into the third floor of a dorm that has been renamed. Yeah, so it used to be called Sarah. Now it's called Sally Ride. And we lived on the third floor across the hall from each other. Yeah, six years later, I'm still living in a Stanford dorm. So here I am. So I think Alex might want to kick us off. Yeah, this is most inspired by your most recent work, but something that has been most inspiring and interesting to see you in like over the past six years is that you've like explored these different facets of what philosophy could be like in the real world. Mm -hmm. So there was one where you're working at a think tank. There's one where you're working for a foundation. And that's kind of where I wanted to hone in on is that second part. You wrote an article. We're going to do a shameless plug for you right now. In an article, what big philanthropy can learn from the citizen networks helping us survive today's crises. And you talk about this like different approach to how we can give to the community. Can you kind of like elaborate on that? There has been a pretty long process of transition. I mean, I could take a step back and talk about how I got to that kind of model for philanthropy and how I got to those kind of conclusions over like a longer time horizon. So I came into college pretty interested in like global poverty. Like it, it was just striking to me. I mean, I used to go to India every year and it's like pretty common knowledge at this point that like most of the world lives in what we call like absolute poverty or there are different words for it, but it's like not super great access to sanitation. And so and health and, and education and food. So there are all these things and everyone kind of knows about them and just like not really that it seems like we can do on a day-to-day -day basis to help these issues. But there are these things called foundations that are set up to portably tackle these issues. And so, and then there's another approach called effective altruism that was like a growing movement in the Bay Area, which I moved to when I was 18. And was surrounded by all of, like these tech and CS kind of people that were also really into effective altruism and like maximizing 
and making as efficient as possible the process of doing good and being very scientific and mathematical about what the good is. And at that point, the community was really interested in global poverty and development too. So I was sympathetic to them. They've since kind of become a, a, a more complicated beast of a movement. Yeah, I went from that approach to kind of being skeptical of the essentially there's there's a different lens you can take to foundations and like western countries that have mostly been the, the historical causes of poverty in other countries through the extraction and colonialism and imperialism and the whatever last 500 years there's and there's even a bill gates quote that and i think earlier on like he talked about population control being one of the big goals of the Gates Foundation, which is fraught, <laughs> let's say. A history of the eugenics movement that had a similar thing. There are like feminist circles, like what you could call like white feminists. And I, I don't know what the time the period is exactly, but pre the 70s that were also into like female empowerment and access to birth control for poor black and brown women. But also there was a kind of like also we just kind of want to like make less of them <laughs> so I, I started to become like kind of cautious and hesitant around like these big western billionaires generally devoting their fortunes to like solving problems elsewhere and i do I mean, which isn't to say that like at this point i'm i think that these foundations do do good work it is complicated when foreign entities in, like intervene and so let's say like in if, if our social safety net was constantly being intervened by other countries it might hurt like how robust our social safety net was because we wouldn't be able to set up the institutions for ourselves because there are like other people that are kind of like coming in and like coming and leaving and doing various things and so i started to become kind of more cautious of, about those approaches and for philosophical reasons, not super into effective altruism and like its approach to maximizing good and like how it conceives of what the good is, which is like pretty abstract and not really worth going into right now. And then I kind of ended with like, okay, we have a lot of problems in our immediate communities, like in the US where we are. And it's not like we have two and a half million people in in prison we have half a million people sleeping homeless every night and like millions of children going like without food like going home going to bed hungry every day in this country so and like right now in light of covid and the lack of government response people don't have like cash to pay bills like unemployment benefits haven't been extended there's going to be a huge wave of evictions and we're all just like sitting and waiting for all these horrible things to happen. So the only viable response that can actually transform the system so wrong with our country and because the things that we do wrong as the United States have a large effect on other countries. So we contribute like, I think it's historically like half or a quarter of global emissions has than just the US. So if we stopped doing that, like a lot of other countries would be better off if we had like reasonable trade policies and like didn't force countries to like liberalize their economies and like overthrow dictators throughout Latin America or overthrow countries and install dictators throughout Latin America. Like we can do a lot of good in the world just by fixing this country and there are more than enough problems here. So I think that's like 
where my attention has shifted. And like from there, it kind of got to like, okay, we have these problems. And one of the basic issues seems to be that the systems that we've created to solve them are not, are, are clearly just a reflection of wealthy entrenched corporate interests. And so there's like this aristocracy in the country that mostly calls the shots with respect to like what policies we have, like who's elected to power and a whole slew of other things. So like the, the countervailing balance of low income people of color, like being at the forefront of social movements, like building that countervailing power is like kind of now the goal that I see both like for philanthropy and for myself. So I think that philanthropists should be like doing everything, everything they can to empower low income communities of color and like black women <laughs> at the forefronts of these movements to like empower those people because the reasons that we have so much global stuff, like if, if every one of the presidents of the United States had been a black woman, there would be no climate change. <laughs> there would be no, there would have been slight, like it, most of the bad things just wouldn't have happened. And I mean, it's, this is a little tongue in cheek. I know it's not just like, it's not just like, like we just don't need like Condoleezza Rice's. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, there, there are ways to go wrong here. But um, yeah, so that's kind of what I explained in the article is like, that's, I think philanthropists need to be like building these social movements that can actually change these systems. Do, do you have a, a vision for what that looks like concretely? Like what a potential system where like philanthropy can work at like a grassroots level and like actually serve the communities they set out to serve? Yeah, it's it's complicated when, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have the, the requisite experience to like really explain how that would work. But I mean, part of, Part of the the problem is just like you have people that have a lot of money, like enormous amounts of wealth that are not in like activist circles that are not in low income communities that are organizing for themselves right now. And so as far as like if you're a foundation or just someone with a lot of money who wants to help people, it might be hard to like find the people that are doing really good organizing and creating alternative structures of power and know which ones need money now and like know like know what infrastructure needs to be set up and know like what policies need to be changed for that infrastructure to like sustain itself. So if it's like our proposition system in California where Oscar and I are like, we just have like, <laughs> I was looking at how much money is spent on some of these propositions, like the kidney dialysis one from 2018 it was like some small seeming rule changed i don't know what it was but it was it was something where i think a hundred million dollars was spent by healthcare companies that provide kidney dialysis services i I don't remember if it was for or against it but just like they just bought something that they just bought public policies like that's just what the system that's what the, the ballot initiative system can do I mean, our electoral system isn't so much better. So it's both investing in like the actual people that are going around. Like, so the the best example that I can think of is like, as far as like what philanthropists should do, it's like donate to the movement for black lives. They, they have the infrastructure set up. They are like a coalition of 150 or more 
Black-led liberation organizations, including the Black Lives Matter group, Color, I think Color of Change, BYP 100. Like there's a whole slew of really good organizations that like, if you want, I think they seem to be, in my mind, doing, and so some of the, some of the groups that I'm aware of, the philanthropist groups, so that are interested in the same things that I'm interested in, and I cite them in this article, resource generation, I feel like you're a young person with money and you want to invest in, in people of color-led organizing, you should go join resource generation and they'll like help you figure out how much money to give and like how to set up the processes. And if you have a lot more money than that, <laughs> if you're not just top 10% wealth or income, but just can give like $25,000 a year or something like that, then you should go join Solidaire, which is the kind of bigger <laughs> fish version of that. And they're both partnered with the Movement for Black Lives because they need money and they can do, they introduced the Breathe Act, which is a sweeping piece of legislation in Congress. And that's only something you can do if you have millions of dollars to spend writing legislation in Congress. So that's the easiest plug. And then finding organizations like that, that already exist in your neighborhood. So yeah, I mean, it requires a lot of like local level research, but, and just asking people that might know and like asking organizations that are around and uh, since writing that, I've been thinking about like organizing versus policy change. So let's say like, there are people that are just, and both of those things go hand in hand, but there are different parts of the process you can fund. So you can like fund people directing actions for like some, some group of people to show up at town hall with signs and like, or like coordinating a sit-in or getting really a really nice website and like text banking going and like just like there are all sorts of campaign infrastructure, things like that. And then there's like hiring lawyers and like policy analysts and organize, like having, creating lobbying infrastructure, which is like a slightly different sort of thing or litigation that you can do that. that I think there are probably that the weakness of that article is that there are other strategies that can do kind of similar things. The benefit is that organizers generally have the most radical politics. So activists will have like the abolitionist aim and will have done a lot of the really radical like reading groups and all of that. And then lawyers and <laughs> other people will generally like water down those demands, like politicians will water down those demands and do something like close. One question I did want to have, because I feel like you touched on sort of in my head two pools of things one on like the organization and the policy side and how that looks and then kind of what the general everyday approach that like someone like any of us could do as far as donating and becoming involved but taking a step back to the people that have a lot like the billionaire mm -hmm. philanthropist that you talked about what does that conversation look like to get those folks that have this insane amount of capital to pivot both their mentality and their funds over to these grassroots movements, you know, cause I'm thinking, okay, I have a crap ton of money and I have this mission and vision of what I want to do with it. And you feel super noble and honorable that you're going to do that. Right. I can mm -hmm. imagine that's the sentiment to be like, Oh, actually screw whatever I'm thinking. I should right. just pivot and go over to these people that know at the city level, at the neighborhood level, at the county level, that that's what that community in rural Georgia might need or down in like Chicago. I don't know if you can talk to that or what your thoughts there might be. Cause that seems to be like where there's just, you know, there's power in people and there's power in money. And that's the power and money side that I see, like what that might look like. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And it's a good observation that 
I am advocating for philanthropists to not impose their agenda, essentially. And it's just the least invasive way to do it. It's just who are the, I don't know. I mean, it's hard because as soon as you have a billion dollars that you've decided you're going to donate to charity, even if you're giving it to the grassroots organizers, that is you're choosing which organizers and you're choosing to do that as opposed to writing a check to the treasury which is, you can just do that. You can write a check to the treasury and then Congress will democratically <laughs> apportion it. It's, it's really hard when philanthropists have generally like, first of all, they, they, they just, they don't like activists that much. I mean, which is just a reality of people that have built fortunes in business or investing or tech or whatever. Maybe some of the tech people are younger and like might be more into it, but generally... I think, so based on what other people have told me that so I'm, I'm kind of working on some article or like while I was working with Rob, I was working with other people at Stanford trying to convince So we did a workshop with some like high net worth donors and tried to convince them, like tried to explain to them this model where like you share the power. It's not you who decides what to fund and how much to fund and what to do with the money. You just put people on your board. You put people on your board that are not, that are just, let's say, representatives from unions or community groups or churches or whatever. So if it is rural Georgia, the best example I have of this is like, I think it's Barbara Myers and the Southern Partners Fund. It's this woman who I think, think she inherited money and was like, this is not mine. Like, this is not my money. And just found a bunch of grassroots organizers of, in rural communities throughout the South. And were like, here, you, you do whatever you want with this money. You are the board of directors of this fund. It's yours. You can invest in your, in whatever organization structures or in whatever you want. And that's the cleanest case. I think it, yeah. I mean, you either have to really feel like capitalism is unjust. Like you have to feel like the money that you've made is like not yours or the money you've inherited is like not yours. So it's easier to feel that for money you've inherited where it's like, this is just like, <laughs> this is totally arbitrarily given to me. Like, why would I be in charge of this money? And so you'll have like younger people that feel that and they're more attracted to the solidaire model. And so they'll, they might do that. I think Leah Hunt Hendricks is one of the most prominent uh, she, she, so she's the Hunt family, like the ketchup. Uh, so she founded Solidaire after like writing a dissertation about solidarity. So Rob knows her or something like that. Cause she did like political philosophy and then was like, yeah, I actually just want to invest in solidarity with all of the, the shit I've inherited. So, or there's Abigail Disney, right? So this is the, this is the Disney heir that calls herself a tr class traitor. And it's like, I'm just trying to like, so she has this thing or she's part of this thing called the League of Patriotic Millionaires. That's just like arguing for, it's like a kind of a lobbying group that's like arguing for higher taxes. And I think it's the, the goal is to like do things that are actively subverting the interests of millionaires. <laughs> like just try to make millionaires worse off in the country because there shouldn't be millionaires. It's, or at least there shouldn't be billionaires, but it's it's not easy as far as like how the workshop went and stuff like people are not on board with this generally and so it's going to be a small group of people that either feel like they really believe like myself who like believes in grassroots organizing a lot and so we'll go through it that way or somebody who just is like 
I, this is not this money is not mine. There's no reason that I inherited this money, or even there's no reason that like I made this fortune. Like I just did a few things and I got pretty lucky, <laughs> and like people wanted to buy my thing. There's no way I could like known whatever, and like a lot of other people did the work that somehow entitled me to all of their work. I didn't make every box of ketchup, but I still ended up with a billion dollars. I didn't make any boxes of ketchup, but I still. <laughs> so. Now that makes sense. That's an interesting take because I feel like people's relation to property and money is such a complex thing that's been built up over a long time. But one can say one of the main reasons that we even have to have any of these conversations comes down to this issue of what is the role of government and why isn't government providing what, depending on your school of thought, should be providing, right? You know, it's <laughs> like, why do we have to raise money to help, you know, a kid get a backpack for school or get lunch or something when, you know, on another end, it's like, oh, the government should ensure that we have these basic needs met. So what are your takes on what role the government should have and how it's failing the people and why that is? Is it because no one can agree on anything, especially in the U.S. is like government system? Big question, but I don't know, some light thoughts you might have on that. The basic issue is that the forces controlling government don't want to provide those services to people that need them. And I mean, more directly, it's just like, so even the question of like a living wage, like it's not just the services that the government does or doesn't provide. It's like the working conditions that the government does or does not ensure. So if companies lobby, so, <laughs> so in a system where the government is just com almost wholly transparent to the needs of business and whoever is best organized and has the most money, which is why people need to get the reason the NRA and the chamber of commerce are so fucking good at passing policies is because they have a lot of money to get organized. Like they can organize all the stakeholders. They can buy the drinks for the right people. Like they, they've installed themselves in the halls of power and that takes relationship building and money. So part of the solution that I was pointing to is doing that for the left. And then as far as why isn't government doing more, it's because the people controlling government don't want it to, which is to say that like the government was never going to, to provide services that businesses don't want them to. In order to pass any kind of environmental regulation, it takes, <laughs> it takes enormous like public awareness campaigns. Like you have to like shame every possible corporation. They'll still like spend... Even even in San Francisco, there were dozens of tech companies signing $100,000 checks to pose the homelessness measure that would have raised their taxes like a fraction of a percent. And it was only for like really, really profitable, like profits exceeding $50 million headquartered in San Francisco. And it was Prop C, it was 2018. And so even, even to provide basic homelessness services to a city that Everyone, it, it's, it, it's completely unremarkable at this point that San Francisco has a homelessness crisis and we just have stopped really caring in the sense that like if there was urgent, if people were like, oh, we really need to solve this, it's not that hard to solve it. There's just not the political will to do so. The reason that part of the reason that there's not the political will to do so is because most of San Francisco's voters and most of San Francisco's business owners are not homeless people or are directly affected by the problem very much. While we're on the topic of politics, because you are like very well versed in current events and the current status of, of politics, 
are we are we done with centrists obviously biden has like advertised his his whole campaign on being a centrist and working with others and there had been a lot of notable candidates who kind of went along that route like klobuchar and i think steve bullock had also like sold themselves as like oh i i'm in like a a blue collar state and i'm a democrat and you know i can get things done with both sides of the aisle but i think now and then it was also the case in 2016 where i think there was another divergent way and, and a growing uh, with growing support a different way of how to approach it and it's being like unabashedly you know for the people democratic socialism is a word that gets thrown around a lot these people who like really don't waver you know, like stay true to like a specific platform so where do you see the path going forward i don't have any like informed real informed opinions on this uh <laughs> I'd say I've thought more about the other stuff I would say, but I don't know. I, I personally have completely lost faith in the Republican party. I don't know. I don't know what evidence I have to believe that there's any good faith to be negotiated. Like I remember as a kid and growing up with Obama's president too, like part of me was like, yeah, you know, he's just trying to like get everyone to agree. And, and sometimes it kind of made sense with, or sometimes I could kind of see why he wanted to do that. And it's like, you know, you want to like unite the country. And I mean, I, I would hear some of our friends talk about Pete Buttigieg and for the same reasons, like, oh, like a uniting force, not a centrist, just like not just like a less progressive, more cent- like more moderate kind of candidate. Yeah, at this point, I think it's just up for the Republican Party to reinvent itself and not become so obviously the party of hate. And to the point where it's pretty hard for them to win elections. It's pretty hard for them to win the popular vote, certainly. They haven't won. We've had three of the last seven terms have been Republicans, and two of those terms, the Democrats won the popular vote. So the last six out of the last <laughs> like elections, yeah, have gone Democratic. And like, that's, they just have to fix them. Like, there's no, there's no negotiating with the party of Trump. And so unless the Republican Party and the Republican base accordingly. I don't know who has to do the moving. I don't, I don't know if the problem is that there are just so many avid Trump supporters that are completely seeped in this like alternative ecosystem in which we're being, I was just reading some like Washington Post article about like somebody who trolls Trump supporters by like producing Trump supporter content, but like stuff that's really kind of obvious to tell that it's fake like a picture of like trump and behind them it's like a black woman and a white woman and they just like say that it's like chelsea clinton and like michelle obama even though it's like very obviously not and it's like oh this pic look at they circle in the picture there the, those two people are circled and it's like look at these people look at the obamas and the clintons flipping off the president after they invited him to this thing or whatever none of this is mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is all fabric like, and but if you live in this alternative ecosystem where where muslim sharia law is the biggest threat facing our country and there are caravans of migrants that you know whatever racist stuff you can say about them like i i mean i don't think that is most republicans i think most republicans are just like kind of going along with it for the ride because they've been republicans their whole lives and they like don't like regulation and taxes. And so like, 
okay, fine. Like I'll add some racism. Can we be more subtle about it? Like, I think that's probably where a lot of, I, I don't know. There are a lot of parts of the Republican party and I don't know how feasible it is for them to start actually becoming less overtly racist. Maybe that's too large of their base. I think it's more of like a dare move situation as far as bipartisanship. So the, what, what I'm hearing as the answer is like wait it out until this whole like Trump thing kind of blows over and see like kind of like kick stock at that point. Yeah, I mean, and I think even then it's going to be like, at this point, I just don't really, I don't know, like arguing for lower taxes is just a different form of racism. It's not like people will say that because they hate black people, but maybe they'll forget that when you argue, argue for low taxes and don't want national health insurance, you're making it so that black people like go bankrupt at higher rates because of medical bills. Like that's, that is a direct result of that. <laughs> and that's true, even though more white people would benefit from Medicare for all than black people, because they're just more white people. But like, that doesn't matter. Which is to say that like, even if the Republican Party became like the party of Bush or, again, or something like that. I don't think we should start doing more of those things, but it might become in some ways easier to like have some, like have a few moderate Republicans that will like support Medicare for all. Like that, maybe that's 20 year down the line sort of thing, but it, it might happen. Or it'll be interesting seeing what happens as, you know, it's hard to sometimes envision what these concepts look like just over time. Because if you look at how much things have changed over a decade, two decades to have anticipated that we'd be where we are now. throws me off sometimes because it's like, if this type of stuff can happen, what can continue to happen and shift? Can I ask you a question? What about politics makes you most optimistic right now? Or is there like some trend or like some person or some movement? I don't know if you have one, Alex. I, I have one off the top of my head. I like that... Black Lives Matter has become a less controversial statement. And I know it doesn't seem that way, but I think there have been a lot more, like more moderate Democrats who have rallied around that saying. And for better or for worse, it's more prevalent in social media. I look at my campers in Camp Kesem, just like their stories now are entirely just activist messages. I think that's cool that there's a, a generation that's coming up that is more aware of these things and two that I think people like understanding the underlying concepts behind even the simplest statement and I think that's just generally cool that like you know more people are yeah they agree that everyone like deserves you know the right to life yeah no I don't think I could have said it better myself I think I was also leaning towards the youth mm. it's funny to say that because you know as kids Growing up, our parents, our teachers were like, right. you guys are the future. And we are kind of in that phase of the future. I look at my younger cousins or my sister or kids at school that like my mom's students. And I think now these kids are the future. And I think seeing them and the access to resources they have as far as education and information is super powerful. And it can go both ways, good or bad. But I've definitely seen it go towards being good and becoming aware and in a very positive way, like these kids are more empathetic, I feel, you know, they're just like aware of people's feelings and each other and their environment. And a lot of people like would go and argue, oh, these kids are just like gravitated to their screens in which a way they are. But it's like connecting them in a way most people outside that age range don't necessarily understand. So I think that's uh, where I gather sort of my source of optimism for uh, 
where the future is going to go because it's like you got a massive amount of uh, Gen Z kids coming your way, and I think I think they're coming with a punch, and that's what's going to push things forward. Hopefully, Gen Z is a good answer. Both of those are good answers. We just gave up on our generation. Millennials, fuck millennials. <laughs> we out, we out, tap out. We're also the awkward middle ground between generations. Oh right? yeah. So like- I like to play my Gen Z card when I'm around like slightly older people than us. So even like my brother is three years older. But then when I'm around Dia, my, my younger sister is six years younger than me. It's like, she's, she's really in it. And I'm very obviously not there. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing that I kind of wanted to hop into, and you know, now that we're talking about like sort of education and citizens of, uh, of the world and of the country and how critical that is to, developing sort of a change you've spent some time in education for about the past a little over a year at stanford in uh helping develop a computer science ethics course engineering ethics course do you want to touch a little bit about that work and sort of uh you know how you are inspiring and creating these types of conversations around ethics in a professional aspect for people looking to go into uh engineering roles and things like yeah that. i would say that i i feel like i I'm still very much learning about the role that I want to play in a kind of education or awareness raising kind of way. I don't really see myself as an educator right now, just because I didn't, I mean, even for the class that I was helping teach, I didn't actually like TA a section, which I think would have provided a different kind of relationship. But like even, even this, this high school, so that Stanford does this thing called Splash, where, I mean, you, both of you know about it, but it's like high school kids in the area come to Stanford and Stanford students teach like one-off classes. And like, that was things like that. And even leading discussions has been probably the, so I led a discussion about the, what is the meaning of life? And I just like grilled these like 15 year olds about why they're not nihilists and they were a lot fewer nihilists than I would have expected. I thought that you put like 20, 15 year olds together and you like have some like jaded existentialist people, but like they were all, <laughs> they were all ready to go. So I think the role, and, and it's tricky because the role of the philosopher is stereotypically to just be asking questions. So that's how the professor I worked for would see himself, I think predominantly, it's not to provide answers. And I don't know if I like that. I feel like, <laughs> which is maybe part of the reason that I've moved away from wanting to go into academia or be a professor is because if my goal is just to like indoctrinate kids, that just doesn't seem like a good teacher. Like I should be in it for more than just convincing these engineers that the tech industry is evil. That I don't, I can just be like out there saying that, like, I don't know if I should be teaching the class when... I have such strong views in the matter that I'm not so good at filtering and hiding and channeling in the appropriate ways. I want to go back to this w- little workshop that you had with very powerful people. The one, the one that you did with uh, Rob Reich, because I think that was really interesting that there is like such a concentrated mass of like wealth and like the ability to affect change in the world. Maybe could you just like kind of set the scene, like how... How did the idea emerge? What did you tell these people <laughs> what's gonna happen? Because <laughs> it seems like we, we know the ending a little bit, like they were like not really down for what the, the message you were putting out, 
So maybe start at the beginning. Yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't actually there because this was at the very beginning of COVID. And there was this like 300 person mm-hmm. rugby conference happening. And it was March 7th. I think I remember the date. Sounds right, right for an It was like in Napa <laughs> and it was like a lot of people. And I just was not feeling like this was a good thing to do. And it was before people were really canceling things, but I just, I didn't have a good feeling about it. So I wouldn't go, but I, I know that the reason people were interested in this presentation is because, so first Rob wrote this book that challenged a lot of people and it was about the relationship between philanthropy and democracy. So that was like the, the real like grounding framework and how, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of complicated book to summarize because I don't want to like misconstrue my boss's book, but <laughs> like part of it, it the, the subtitle is like how democracy is failing, how philanthropy is failing democracy and how it can do better, I think. And and it's a part of the, the criticism just being both the policies that structure philanthropy and the way it's practiced is just rich people kind of doing whatever they want to society. That shouldn't be okay if we think that we're a democracy. If we thought we were a democratic country, why do we just have these rich people doing whatever they want? There's some of the feedback from the book that he got was like, okay, thank you for this criticism. What do I do? Then we started partnering with people from the Philanthropy and Civil Society Center at Stanford, Nadia and Ayushi, and Rob and I were the kind of team that put together like advice, essentially. Like these are strategies that you can use as a donor. These are examples that you can turn to. These are like three different ways of doing philanthropy in a democratic way. And so that was our frame. That's like how we pitched it. And then once they got in the room, we tried to like explain the different parts of it. And two of the parts were, you can use philanthropy to like fix our actual democratic processes. So so use it to like fix campaign finance laws or like make sure there's a robust media apparatus that isn't filled with disinformation and is being bought by billionaires left and right. So like all of the different components of our democracy, like having that, having philanthropists repair that so that in the future they don't need to exist. Like in, in the future, like the, <laughs> we'll just have a good system for de- dealing with their problems, kind of like what Oscar asked before. And then, and then the other part of it was the power sharing thing, which is like use democratic principles, not to, like it's not fixing the democratic process. It's just if, if we are committing to democratic principles, you shouldn't get to say how things are, are done here. Like it shouldn't just be your decision to decide what you do with the money, what problem to specifically think, like what building you want to build at Stanford. Like that's, that shouldn't be your decision. That shouldn't be your prerogative. Why don't you let other people decide where the money goes? My impression from what the feedback was, was that people were not so into it. And not only that, but people almost didn't get it. And, and it's tricky because, you know, I think one of the things was, well, we don't, we give the money to the nonprofit and the nonprofit does whatever they want with it. But it's like, no, 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 we want you to not choose the nonprofit. We want somebody else to just have the money and do whatever, like give it to whatever fund and nonprofit or people that they want to. I think there was a moment that it clicked for some people. And then I think some people were just like, that's it. Weird. <laughs> that's interesting because kind of on, on, we had talked about the whole money thing and people's relation to it. It feels like, I can imagine that one of the hesitancies there is as soon as you put another middle person there, you're like adding a secondary stage of separation from their money. Cause it is almost an uncertainty, right? Yeah. Of like, Oh, Mm -hmm. they're going to make the call. It's like having almost like 
a wealth manager, a financial advisor, but yeah. for like these uh, donations or goods, and you're just handing them off, trusting that almost like investments, if you will, right? With like stocks or whatever, but they're instead you're giving it to people in groups that are going to be doing the reason for that is like, so you're trying to address poverty. Like, why don't you give it to poor people? Like, why do you try to figure out how to fix poverty? Mr. Rich man. <laughs> why are you trying to figure out how to like, Ed police brutality, person who like the police love. <laughs> that just doesn't <laughs> yeah. make sense. So knowing knowing what you know after that conference and maybe in a less tongue-in-cheek manner, like what what added messaging would you want to give to these people who are either on the fence or not about what was told at that conference? Like how, how would you want to like massage that communication with them? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was just like, we've done a lot of editing to our actual material. So like the things that we were yeah. providing them, I think weren't as clear as they should have been. And they're clear now in the last few months since then. So that's part of it. And then the other thing is just, yeah, even, even what I just said about like, how are you gonna know how to solve these problems? Like how, and so then it becomes a question of effectiveness, which people are already into in the philanthropy space. You can actually be, it's not only better for democracy and more democratic principled wise, but also just you're going to have better outcomes if you put people in charge of this that are actually affected by the problems and not just old white men with opinions. You know, that was still tongue in cheek. I have a hard time. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's part, it's part of your style. Before we let you go, we like to finish up all our segments with our guests with just some rapid fire questions. If you're down for it. We love hot and flavored food. So what's your favorite spice? Cardamom. It's not spicy, but it's a spice. <laughs> Top three fiction books. Maybe, maybe, maybe within the past year, if it's too difficult, like. I don't read that much fiction these days, so I will not do the past year, but <laughs> let's see. The one that I go to the most is like the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. It's like some Russian dude in the 1800s. Like it's pretty pretentious. So I don't know. Um, I should find that. Oh, the, the Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. It's very good. And I'm, I'm not, this isn't, I, I like Baldwin's fiction, but I actually do like James Baldwin's essays more maybe just because it's like what I was feeling at the time. But yeah, James Baldwin's great. Nice. All right. And the final one to top it off, Mohit, we love to dance. Audience, Mohit loves to dance. So for some reason, you can either only use your arms to express motion or your legs. Which one would you take? Definitely legs. I mean, legs are just more important. Okay. <laughs> for, for dancing yeah. okay. and in general, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you I, sure about that? Actually, do you want to double down on that statement? No, I'm not going to double down on the last one. But I feel like in order to get like a lot of the moves that are important, it requires being able to change your like height in space. Okay, no, that makes that, that says all you need to know about Mo's dancing style. Up and down, <laughs> up and down. There's a lot of squats, squats yeah. and jumping. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mo, Mo, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, thank you for entertaining us and teaching us yeah thank you this is great thanks for doing this we'll talk to you soon bye bye